Well, good morning, GPC. We are creatures of habit, aren't we? Think about it. Look where you're sitting and ask yourself why you're sitting there. The answer is to escape the heat of the sun, right? That's why we're in the shade everywhere. Hey, if it's going to be a, a beautiful and cool fall evening when we worship, just remember all this green space is for you. And we can come out of the corners and maybe feel a little bit more like a, a church family that sees each other and interacts. I know it's hard. I know it's awkward. It's that way for all of us. Um, and I'm not making fun of you when I say you're creatures of habit. It's just true. Some of you did move. I noted that. That's good. Uh, but maybe in the future, maybe we can be a little bit closer together. Before I begin the sermon, I do want to re-announce, because I've been told this week by a few people that you're not always good announcement listeners. So let me remind you again, uh, we've got a, several great fall events that are coming, things that we hope will be helpful during this COVID season of not seeing each other and not getting together. And the first of those is Saturday, October the 17th. That is our men's fellowship. Uh, we will meet at the barn just about 15, 20 minutes from here at our property. And ages 13 and up, our young men, ages 13 all the way up, we're going to gather for a bring your own tailgate dinner. And by that we mean bring your own tailgate dinner. You can bring a little grill if you have one. You can come set up shop and cook and enjoy fellowship. Or you can bring a pizza or bring Subway, whatever you want. Uh, that's at 6.30 Saturday, October the 17th. And at about 7.30, Steve May, a good friend of mine, and he's actually worshiping here today. Uh, he is the father of Elizabeth Drexler and the father-in-law to Daniel Drexler. He is our speaker that evening, and he's speaking on faithful leadership. We want to talk to our young men starting at age 13 about the truth that God's calling them to lead something, and we want it to be faithful leadership. So this is our effort to encourage our young men, all of our men, our older men. I think it'll be worth two hours of your evening in October. So let's do that. Erskine men will be there as well, Erskine students. We hope that will be a great, great evening together. And then also, you heard the announcement that November the 1st, which is a Sunday evening, we're going to have an evening hymn sing at the barn. The music's going to be led by our own ensembles that led our hymns and lead our worship, uh, the, the series we just went through. But half of our music will be led by Erskine students as well. Uh, we think this will be a great time for the church family, and it too looks to be a bring-your-own picnic event. And then lastly, uh, next Sunday night, we will worship here, 6 p.m., for an installation service. If you don't know what that is, come and see. Uh, it's a special time for the church family, and we look forward to celebrating with you all in that setting. A lot of more announcements. I'm sorry about that. But let's turn our attention now to Scripture. We're in week three of a series titled The Church According to Scripture. And even that title suggests that there can be all kinds of thoughts about what the church is and who the church is and what the church does. Everybody's got a gut instinct on that. But that's not what this series is about. 
This series about what Scripture says the church is, who the church is, what the church does. And by the end of the series, I trust you'll see more and more that we actually have a job description. God has called us to do things and to be things in this world. But we're going to make those applications as we go. These early weeks, we're looking backwards in time. We're looking in history at where we've come from and how God's doing, God's promises have defined us and they undergird us, even now. And so this morning, we're looking at the big picture again. The big picture, part two. Banished, wandering, and homeless but homeward bound. This is the church according to Scripture. This is where we've come from. This is who we are. And our first passage this morning is from Genesis chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. Before I read, let me make these brief comments. You've heard it said this week in the news, and you've heard it said frequently throughout your life, elections have consequences. Right? You've heard that quoted this week. Let me play off of that before we read this passage. That sin has consequences. Our first parents' sin and our sin has consequences. What are those? Genesis chapter 3 verses 21 to 24. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Let's pray that God would help us to understand and apply his word. Lord, that is our prayer, that your Holy Spirit would attend to your word and do what you have said and promised you do. You inform us, you teach us, you reform us, you rebuke us. And so, Lord, would you use these few minutes of looking to your word to better understand who we are, who you are, and what you've called us to do. And we ask this and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first parents were banished. Now, when we say our first parents, this is the language where we refer to Adam and Eve, the first parents of creation, the first man, the first woman. And we considered them last week that they were the apex the climax of creation, God centered everything around a family, and through that family, he would bless the earth. 
But because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God, because of their disobeying his word, the scriptures we've just read said there were consequences. And he has now banished the man. He has banished humanity, which that man represents. He has banished them from his presence, from his garden, from his perfection. We've been banned from paradise. We've been banned from paradise. John Milton's historic epic poem, Paradise Lost, is all about this event in human history. That man has been banished from the presence and the perfection of God. And this tells us that banishment, that banishment reveals the seriousness of sin. That it has consequences. Consequences that you and I sometimes pretend aren't real or aren't true. But the scriptures tell us that the breaking, even of God's simplest commands, has consequences. The simplest and clearest of commands, violating that, has consequences. Now think of that. What is the command here? The simple command that God gave his first creatures was that they could eat of any tree in the garden, any single one except one. Now think of the generosity of our God. He gives them an entire garden and says, you can partake of any fruit of this garden, any tree of this garden, save one. But human nature, when tempted, disobeys, rebels, seeks to do that one thing that we're told not to do. Now, those of you who are parents, parents of small children, or you were parents of small children, you understand, we see this in our children at the youngest of ages. Tell them the one thing they can't do, and now suddenly, what do they want to do? And we can giggle about our children, but the same is true of us. There's something about being human that is being rebellious. It is being fallen. It is distorted from all that it can and should be. Our first parents were banished from the garden, banished from perfection. And the, the visual here, there's a lot of images in our sermon tonight or this morning, and I can't comment on all of them, but we have to comment on this, this image. He says, cherubim with flaming sword are guarding the garden so that the man cannot come back in. Now, when I say cherubim, some of you picture a chubby little baby-looking angel, right? Some of you remember precious moments, the little figurines that always highlighted chubby little cherubs, little, you know, babies. And that's how sometimes when we read the scriptures, we picture angels thanks to contemporary Christian culture. But I want to challenge your thinking there with surely what was the most intimidating image that could be captured. Cherubim, multiple angels, not one. One would be a cherub. Cherubim with flaming sword. And really the visual here is one of authority, power, strength, threat. This is an intimidating image, and it's intended to be that. 
They are representing God. They are the servants of God with power and authority and flaming sword, whatever that is. If you would like to know exactly what the flaming sword is, let me refer you once again to our assistant past pastor, minister of congregational life and care, and he'll describe that flaming sword in great... Well, maybe that's not fair. Sorry, Archie. I don't know what this flaming sword is, but it is intimidating, it is authoritative, it is powerful, and it sends a message to humanity, and here's the application. Listen to this. Perfection, the presence of God, paradise, not to be experienced in this life. That's, that's what it sends the signal, the message of. So why do we struggle with perfectionism in this life, if that's an issue for you? Perfectionism captures all kinds of disorders, all kinds of disturbances of human life, this seeking of perfection and control, right? We were told we will never have perfection, never have paradise, never have the presence of God in this life. It's been guarded from us. And yet some of us are neurotic and exhausted and disappointed and frustrated because we, we feel like we just can't quite control things. We, we're just not quite perfect the way we want to. And this passage says to stop that. You're not going to find perfection in this life. And some of you, if that's not your issue, some of you are just frustrated with others. And you're frustrated when you deal with the consequences of sin in this life. That things really are broken and ruined. And that makes you mad when things go wrong. I'm preaching to myself here. right? When something doesn't work the way it's supposed to work, you get frustrated and you get mad. In this life, that's the norm. We forget that Genesis 3 prepares us. That we are living in an imperfect place and dealing with the frustrating consequences of the fall. And this passage should put that to rest for us. Not that we're okay with disappointment, frustration, our sin, other people's sin. We don't excuse it, but we have a category for it. We understand that it's not about this life. It's always been about the next. And so we can breathe. We can live graciously with one another because of our imperfection, because of our frustrations. Christians have categories for how life is really going to be on this earth. Secondly, well, no, listen to this quote by Rob Rayburn on this subject. Sermon uh, quote says this, The fact that the Lord placed cherubim to guard the entrance to the garden suggests that man should be expected to attempt to find his way back to the peace and presence of God in the garden by his own will and effort as opposed to God's. And that is the story of human history and our many failed and futile efforts to do so. Do you hear what he's saying? The fact that the garden would have to be guarded is indication that we would try to get there on our own. We would try to find a way to access what we want 
And it's not ever going to happen until God makes the way and gives the invitation himself. Now, secondly, second point. God's people, ever since this event in Genesis, God's people have been wandering and homeless ever since. God's people have been wandering and homeless ever since this event in Genesis. As a matter of fact, just a few chapters later in Genesis, we read about Abram. Listen to this passage. It says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Lord comes to Abram and says, now go. Now get up and go. Be on the move and leave everything that you know. Leave your people. Leave your place. And God calls Abram to do something very difficult and very hard, which is to move, to be on the go. Now listen to what happens immediately after this. So Abram left. Abram traveled through the land. He went on toward the hills. Abram went up. Abram went from place to place. That's all in chapter 12, chapter 13 of Genesis. And the imagery here is being on the move, wandering, homeless, looking for a place and seemingly never finding it. And that is the image given to the church of what it feels like to live in this world and in this life. God's people have been a wandering and homeless people ever since that event in Genesis chapter 3. And God's word prepares us for it. He tells us that is how it is going to be until he makes all things right again. He gave a promise of land, a promise of seed or offspring, a promise of blessing, but it would be while Israel was on the move, while the church was on the move. And so you could say, I could ask, how's your theology of moving? How's your understanding of what the Bible says about you being restless and on the move? Where instinctively, what do we all want to do? Settle down. Grow some deep roots. Be still and be happy. But God has said his people are on the move. They're engaging the earth. And that's just not what we want, is it? We want to be settled and still. We want all of our ducks in a row. We want all of our people at home. That's the picture of what? paradise that's our garden that we want but the Lord says don't don't think it's going to be like that you're going to be on the move you're going to be restless you're going to be confused you're going to be frustrated and that's how life is in this world Rob Rayburn says here in that same sermon on this passage from Genesis he says we have in the narrative of the fall 
and the banishment of Adam and Eve from the garden, not simply a telling of what happened in history, but an interpretation of human life and history from then till now. And that's the point. We come from a long line of wanderers, restless, homeless people. And sometimes the American dream and our seeking the fulfillment of it, which is settling down, having a place, having everyone home, it's great. But don't let it distract you from the spiritual reality of life for the church. We are a restless, homeless people. That is the history of humanity. That's what the fall has done. And that is the context of the church. The New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have this imagery of wandering Israelites in the desert, leaderless, seemingly hopeless, lost, needing to be found. And then the language of the New Testament isn't any different. We're told we are aliens and strangers in the land. And so we're pilgrims. There's no wonder why so much of the church's music talks about pilgrimage and wandering like sheep, being lost, dazed, and confused. The church is a wandering, lost, and confused-seeming people. We want to settle down. We want to be at home. We want to be in a garden. But remember what Jesus said in the passage we heard at the beginning of the service. Jesus himself said, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's that same picture of being homeless, being on the move, of wandering, waiting for something that could be home. And that is our third and our last point. God's people may be wandering, they may be unsettled, but we have always been homeward bound. We may be lost, we may be wandering, we may feel like we're in the desert, but we've always been homeward bound. That's the promise that God's made to us. This is all going somewhere, people. It doesn't feel like it sometimes. There's seasons of life that it doesn't feel like it. But God has said, we, if our faith is in Christ, if we're a right member of his church, we are homeward bound. That is the conclusion to the story that we'll get to. But now we wait for it. We long for it. And we're told we have to wait for it with patience. Psalm 130 that we sang just a few minutes ago. Martin Luther took Psalm 130 and wrote what I think is just a beautiful, beautiful summary of what it is to live in this fallen world. God has made promises and they undergird us, undergird us but we wait for it with patience. And we're about as patient as the little children waiting for the cookies to come out of the oven. Not very patient. We want what we want now. We don't want to wander. We don't want to be frustrated. We don't want to suffer. But God says, my promises are true. Now wait with patience.
And that's the context that the church lives in. We wait for it with patience. Psalm 107 captures a beautiful truth here about everything that we've said this morning. This is just a portion from a long summary of Israel's history. But listen to this as it ties in so well to what we've heard from Genesis 3. The psalmist says, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from east and west and north and south, some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. For he satisfies the thirsty and he fills the hungry with good things. We've been wandering in unsettled since Genesis 3. And in a moment of Israel's history, he gave them a shadowy type, not the real fulfillment, but a shadowy type of what it was to be given a land, to be given a city, to be given opportunity to settle. And that image and that brief experience was to show the beautiful reality of a city yet to come, of a garden yet to come, that a new Adam, a second Adam, would establish for us. We heard earlier in the service that Jesus said to his disciples, don't you know I'm going away to prepare a place for you? And that second Adam would do that before his death by going to a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in this second garden, he would experience the wandering, fretful preparation for the event that would change human history and that would define the church forever as he prepared to go upon a cross for his people. And so we have two atoms and we have two gardens, all of which tell one story about what God has been doing for his people since the very beginning. But we wait for it, and we're to wait for it with patience. An impatient people told to trust the promises of God through the most difficult events that you're living or that you will live. But we wait with patience for God to bring a city, for God to settle a people, and our trust is in his word and that he'll do exactly what he's promised to do. Let me close with this story. So a year ago in July, so this past July, a year before that, my wife and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. And I know what you're thinking. How could he have been married for 25 years, right? That's what you're thinking. Well, we have been, 26 now. And to celebrate that, we decided to do something we'd never done. Uh, we flew out of the country. We made preparations to go to a resort 
in Mexico. So we did that. We flew to Mexico, and my memories of all that are not the enjoyable part of the trip. We had to be at the airport. I think we got up at 3.30 in the morning to go on this trip, to go fight Atlanta traffic so that we could get on a plane and fly to Mexico. Now, I like a good schedule, and I like being on time, and I like control. Maybe I have some perfectionistic tendencies of wanting everything to go just right. And so we get on the plane, and we're on time, and our bags are packed, and we get to Mexico. And I don't speak Spanish. But suddenly we're in the airport in Mexico, and we're just told, you need to find Pedro. Pedro's going to have on a certain looking shirt and a certain looking hat. And Pedro will get you on the shuttle that will get you to your paradise, your little time on the resort. So we're going through the airport and we're looking for Pedro in Mexico. We find ourselves waiting and people gathering and surely this must be Pedro and Pedro doesn't speak English, we don't speak Spanish, but we do what Pedro says because we learn the importance of trusting Pedro. When in Mexico, trust Pedro. So we get put on a shuttle, and Pedro says something to us, but it's in Spanish. We don't know what he says, but we know just stay put. Pedro said to sit here, we're going to sit here. Meanwhile, other families are being put on the shuttle. Um, it becomes clear to me that these people who have different tags than we do, they're not going to the same place that we're going. They're not going to the same resort. Looks like there are multiple resorts that are going to be dropped off. Well, finally, after waiting for what felt like an hour for the shuttle to move, the shuttle moves, and Pedro is taking us to paradise. Or so we assumed, so we thought. And so we're on our way. And this control-oriented, perfectionistic, want to be on time, need to know what's supposed to happen next person, cannot speak the language, doesn't have a schedule that's been given to him. And for about an hour, driving around Mexico, not knowing if we're almost there, not knowing if we're the first to be dropped off or if we're to be the last ones dropped off. I'd just been in knots, not being in control and feeling like we're just spinning our wheels. Tense, anxious knots would probably characterize the start of this vacation. And you know what I did? I finally just gave up. I wasn't going to figure this out. I wasn't going to solve this. There was nothing that I could do but rest and trust in Pedro to do his job. And suddenly when I concluded, Paul, just trust Pedro, you know what I did next? I fell asleep. I'd gotten up at 3 o'clock that morning. I fell asleep on the shuttle, and I don't know if it was long or not, but I know this didn't seem like that much longer Pedro dropped us off in paradise. We made it to the Catalonia. And he took us right to the door, and it's like, oh, we're here now. Perfect. And we took our things. We were dropped off in paradise, and for a week, fantastic. Now, why do I tell you that story? 
in a sense, you need to trust Pedro. Trust Pedro. He knows his way around Mexico, and he know he has a schedule. You just don't know it. And he's going to get you there, and he's going to drop you off, and it's going to be just like it looked in the pamphlet, right? You and I have been told some of what's going to come. Scripture's told us some, not everything. A lot of images, a lot of pictures, a lot of promises. And some of us are living life in anxious knots, and we're perfectionistic, and we get frustrated, and we need to trust the Lord. We need to live faithfully, honor the King, trust the Lord, and He's going to end up being right on time and doing everything that He said He would do, that He promised He would do. And we can rest in that. We can find peace in that, even in a fallen world, in a frustrating world where everyone's lost and everyone's wandering, we can be at peace when we trust the Lord and His promises to us. That's my challenge to you this week. If you wrestle with perfection, perfectionistic tendencies, if you're just frustrated and mad with people because of the fact that you live in a fallen world, can you remember Genesis 3? We were told that sin had consequences. And every one of us is living through those consequences right now. And for some of you, it's really hard. It's really hot right now. It's difficult. For others, maybe your season isn't so bad. But for all of us, it's coming. But trust the Lord. That's, that's the first part of the job description for the church. Trust the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word for the images it gives us, images that should instill some sense of fear and reverence, but images that also instill hope of promise. Lord, would you minister to your people, even as we sing this closing hymn, the truth that we are bound for promised land because you've promised it, and it will come in your timing, and it will be right on time. And so, Lord, give us the grace, the mercy, and the peace that we need to live faithfully in this frustrating and fallen world. We ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.